you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 1057. Some of Jesus' teaching about his return. That was in chapter 21. And we ended last week by saying that Jesus' time teaching at the temple was really just the brief calm before the storm. And in the passage we're turning to this morning, the storm starts. And it's very helpful that we're looking at this passage with this communion table set in front of us this morning. If you have turned to Luke chapter 22, I'll begin reading at verse 1 and read down to verse 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is God's word. In the first section of our passage, Passover approaches And God's enemies put their plan into action. 
Verse 1 tells us the Feast of Unleavened Bread called the Passover was approaching. Earlier in the service, we read about the origins of this celebration. It all began on the night God delivered his people from Egypt. And in the passage that was read for us, God said this event was to be commemorated every year. It was to be commemorated so that his great deliverance would never be forgotten. Alongside the Passover meal, the Israelites were to observe seven days of eating bread made without yeast, or unleavened bread. And later, God told them to celebrate this feast together in Jerusalem. And by the time we get to the New Testament, that's about 1,500 years after the first Passover, we find the two parts have been combined into a week-long celebration. That's why the text uses Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread as interchangeable terms. It was a time when the whole nation remembered God's deliverance. Every springtime, pilgrims swarmed into Jerusalem for the feast. The city was heaving with people, hundreds of thousands of them. And it's ironic, isn't it, that in the build-up to this celebration of deliverance and life, we find here in our passage the leaders of the Jews looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Jesus has said that he has come to bring freedom. He's come to bring release for the oppressed and life. But during this festival of freedom and release and life, his enemies are plotting to kill him. Of course, the leader's plan is not new news to us. Luke has pointed out plenty of times before that the leaders want to kill Jesus. They're just looking for a good opportunity. The thing that has held them back so far is fear of the people. Verse 2 mentions it again. They know Jesus is popular with the crowds. They're worried the people will turn against them if they seize Jesus. So they're looking for some way to get him. On the one hand, it might seem that Passover would be the worst time to make their move. The crowds are at their maximum. And yet, if they could pounce on Jesus privately, away from the crowds, and then if they could turn the crowds against Jesus, well then they could use the crowds to pressure the Romans into executing him. If they could do that, then the Passover would be the perfect time to make their move. But trying to get to Jesus when the crowds aren't around, that's a difficult thing. That would require help from an insider. Someone who knew where Jesus was going to be at any given time. Someone who knew where he was going to go before he went there. If the leaders are going to get Jesus, they need one of his trusted inner circle to betray him. But surely that would never happen. Look again at verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. 
Suddenly, at the most unlikely time, the leaders are presented with the perfect opportunity. Verse 5, they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So what the leaders couldn't do by themselves is going to be done for them. And it's going to be done by the most unlikely of helpers, one of Jesus' hand-picked disciples. It's almost as if there's a greater power at work here, choosing the perfect time, providing the perfect opening to get to Jesus. And in fact, we learn that a greater power is at work. In verse 3, the text says, Satan is at work. Back in chapter 4, we read about Satan tempting Jesus. And when his temptation failed, we were told that he left Jesus until an opportune time. Now Satan has decided the opportune time has come. He makes his move. He had failed to overcome Jesus with temptation, but Judas proves to be a much easier target. We're not told whether Judas struggled against this temptation before he gave in. We don't know if he's been entertaining this idea for a while. We do know that whether this was a long or short process for Judas, he gives in to Satan's temptation. So what are we to make of this? Well, things are happening at several levels here. On a human level, we have human leaders showing themselves to be God's enemies. They're religious people. They claim to love God. But they want to destroy God's anointed one. And so whatever these leaders might claim, they're God's enemies. And Judas, well, he's been living as a disciple of Jesus. But he finally shows his true colors. Even in the ranks of the disciples, we find an enemy of God. And then on the level of spiritual cosmic powers, we find God's arch enemy at work. We see that behind the human events, there's a larger struggle going on. Satan, the devil, is working to destroy God's plans. He was doing the same thing back in the Garden of Eden. And occasionally, Scripture pulls back the curtain to show us the devil's ongoing work. If this was a chess match, we would say that here Satan is making his major move. He's going after the king. Here at the Passover in Jerusalem, the plans of God's enemies are all coming together. The leaders needed an insider to betray Jesus. Satan gives Judas a push. And Judas decides that yes, he'd rather have money in his pocket than have Jesus. For God's enemies, it seems that everything is falling into place. It's all coming together beautifully. As verse 5 says, they're delighted. But we're about to learn that there's another side to all this. In verses 7 to 13, 
Passover arrives and God's Son puts His plan into action. In these verses, we learn that events are not just going to happen to Jesus. He is active. He is working out a plan. The word prepare or preparations occurs four times in this little section. God's enemies might be scheming away, but God's Son has plans of His own. And here, specifically, His plan is to celebrate Passover alone with His disciples. Notice how He makes sure about this. He keeps His own disciples in the dark. Verse 8 says, He picks out Peter and John and he tells them to make preparations for the meal. But when they ask, where do you want us to prepare it? Jesus doesn't tell them. Apparently he has set things up ahead of time. But rather than giving them an address to go to, he has set up this mysterious arrangement. Look again at verse 10. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and find things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Why is Jesus doing things this way? Why has he come up with this rendezvous that looks like it belongs in a spy novel? Well, Jesus knows what's ahead for him. He's going to be betrayed and then killed. He knows, too, that Judas is a traitor. He knows that Judas is watching for an opportunity to betray him away from the crowds. But for a reason we'll think about in a moment, Jesus is determined to eat this meal with his disciples before he's betrayed. So to make sure the meal goes ahead, he keeps Judas in the dark. Judas can't know the venue for the meal ahead of time because none of the disciples know. And so whenever the betrayal comes, it can't come until after this meal. Jesus is in control. The sense we get here is that yes, God's enemies are at work. But above and beyond their schemes, God himself is at work. And his plan is the overriding plan. Things will happen as and when he has planned. So in the end, this is not some great chess match between Satan and God. The outcome is not hanging in the balance. The outcome is in God's hands. But we might still ask, why is it so important to Jesus to have this meal with his disciples? The answer is, he wants to teach his disciples. He wants to teach them some truth that's foundational for their faith. He's going to use the Passover meal to teach them. 
We've already spoken about the origins of the Passover. But it's worth reminding ourselves briefly about the details. The Israelites were held in slavery in Egypt. But God promised to free them by breaking Pharaoh's power. He would do that, he said, by striking down every firstborn in Egypt. In order for the Israelite firstborn to be saved, they had to slaughter a lamb without defect. Then they had to put some of the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their houses. And God explained the purpose of the blood. He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When God came to bring judgment, he would accept the death of the lamb in place of the firstborn in those houses. So the lamb died as a substitute for the people. But where God saw no lamb's blood, then the firstborn in those houses would pay with their own blood. So the Passover meal was a celebration of God's past deliverance. But here, Jesus wants to teach his disciples something else. Passover points forward to the final deliverance. Look again at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Twice here, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. And in verse 16, he says, The Passover will find fulfillment in the kingdom of God. What does he mean? Well, all the way through Luke's gospel, we find Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. And we've said that the kingdom means living under God's rule. We've noticed too that Jesus' message about the kingdom is this. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. In one sense, the kingdom of God came when Jesus came to earth. Those who come to Jesus can begin new life under God's rule today. But in another sense, the kingdom of God is still to come. Jesus also speaks of a future day when he will return to earth a second time. And on that day, he says, all rebellion will be finally, definitively crushed. Every tear will be finally wiped away. All sin will be finally conquered for God's people. The kingdom has come, and the kingdom is coming. It's what theologians call the already and the not yet. We can genuinely begin to live under God's rule today. And yet we'll only experience his rule in all of its glory and fullness when Jesus returns to earth. What has this got to do with Passover? Well, we've said this meal is about past deliverance. 
the exodus from Egypt. But here Jesus says, from now on, it's also a reminder to you of future deliverance. The final deliverance that's yet yet to come. The final deliverance that will come when the kingdom of God comes. In a sense, the exodus from Egypt was a picture of what Jesus will do when he returns. He will lead his people out of a foreign, hostile world. And he will lead them into their true home. Jesus has already told his disciples there will be a feast when he returns. Back in chapter 13, he said, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. The book of Revelation describes the same future feast. In Revelation chapter 19, it's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus wanted to celebrate Passover with his disciples because he wanted to help them fix their eyes on the future, on his return. The deliverance of God's people at the first Passover points to the deliverance of God's people at the end of time. Jesus says that final deliverance will fulfill the true significance of the Passover meal. We're reminded in verse 17 that this is a Passover meal. Luke says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks. This is before the meal. We'll see in verse 20 that Jesus will take another cup after the meal. Some of you were here last March when we had a Passover demonstration. You may remember that the Jewish Passover has four cups. The first cup was taken at the very start of the meal. And that's almost certainly the cup that verse 17 is referring to. But then having told the disciples that Passover pointed to the final deliverance at his return, Jesus now teaches them something else. He teaches them about the new Passover. Jesus interprets his own death. First of all, he says, his death is a voluntary, substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. In verses 19 and 20. Jesus takes the raw materials of the Passover meal and he gives them new significance. He has talked about his death in earlier chapters. Now he wants the disciples to understand what his death means. He's spoken about final deliverance for his people. Now he tells them how they can be sure about their final deliverance. Look at verse 19. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He hands them bread and says, this is my body. Meaning, it represents or it symbolizes his body. His actual body is across the table from them. The bread is a symbol of his body. Jesus knows he will die in just a few hours. And he wants these men to know what his death is for. His body, he says, 
is given for you. In other words, his death will not be just a death. It will be a substitutionary death. He's going to die for his people, in the place of his people. Just as the lamb in Egypt died in place of God's people, so Jesus will die as the ultimate sacrificial lamb, the ultimate substitute. So his death will bring about a new Passover. Those who hide behind his sacrifice will be passed over when God's final judgment falls. God will accept Jesus' death in place of their death. Last week we learned a song that says, Jesus is our refuge in the coming wrath. Our final future deliverance will happen because Jesus has taken the wrath in our place. Rico Tice tells the story of a man who was caught in a forest fire. But amazingly, that man managed to escape from the fire. The wind was driving the fire right towards him. It was coming at great speed. He knew that he could never outrun the fire. So instead, he took some matches from his pocket, he dropped down to his knees, and he set fire to the area right in front of him. Then he stood in the middle of that burnt grass. Very soon the forest fire caught up with him, but it didn't burn him, because the area around that man had already been burnt. That man knew that fire can't burn the same patch of grass twice. And that's not just a helpful tip if you're caught in a forest fire. It helps us to understand what Jesus has done for us. On the cross, the fire of God's judgment fell on him. If we come and cling to him as our savior, then we are safe from the judgment that's coming. God's wrath will not fall on Jesus twice. If we are hiding in him, then we're safe. He is our refuge in the coming wrath. Jesus says in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, when you celebrate this meal, let it bring to mind the significance of my death. Verse 20 says, In the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The old covenant set out the ways that God related to his people in the Old Testament. That covenant was sealed with the blood of sacrificial animals. But even in the Old Testament, God promised a new covenant. And here Jesus says, this new covenant will be sealed, not with the blood of animals, but with my own blood. Why talk about blood? Well, blood in the Bible is a way of talking about death. If you pour out your blood for someone, you die for them. So when we sing songs about salvation through Jesus' blood, we're talking about salvation through his death. 
He died so we don't have to. He took God's just punishment so we could go free. Just like the lamb during the Exodus. God's wrath passed over the homes that were covered by the lamb's blood. As Jesus sits here with his disciples eating the Passover lamb, he is preparing to die himself as the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus has said that his death will seal a new covenant. So it's worth stopping and asking, why did we need the old covenant? Why did God set up the Old Testament system of animal sacrifices? Was that just a nice try on God's part that didn't quite work out? Is that why he had to set up the new covenant? Actually, the New Testament says it was always God's intention to send Jesus to pay for the sins of the world. He's referred to in Revelation as the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So Jesus' death was not a last desperate move on God's part. It was always in his plan. The book of Hebrews tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those animal sacrifices delayed God's punishment. They deferred it. But they didn't actually deal with anyone's sin. Only a perfect human could die in the place of sinful men and women. So we can ask our question again. Why did we need the old covenant first? Why didn't Jesus come earlier? The job of the old covenant was to teach people that they needed Jesus to come. It was to give them a context and a framework that would allow them to understand Jesus' death. Any thoughtful Jew would have understood from the sacrificial system that their sin made them unworthy to approach God, deserving of God's wrath in need of a substitute to take God's wrath in their place. That's what all those endless bulls and lambs slaughtered at the temple were teaching the people. They were giving them a framework to understand Jesus' death when it happened. That's why it's so helpful for us to understand the Old Testament. It's not a distraction from Jesus. It explains Jesus to us. That's why Jesus chooses this Passover meal to teach his disciples about his death. Yes, the Passover is connected to the Exodus 1,500 years before this. But really, its purpose was to prepare and teach people about Jesus. That's why it's so sad that every year Jews continue to celebrate the Passover. And yet they reject Jesus. Jesus has more to teach about his death. After explaining that his death will be a voluntary, substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, he goes on to explain in the final verses of our passage that his death will also be an evil betrayal. Verse 21. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. 
The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. We began by watching God's enemies put their plan into action. Judas and the Jewish leaders and Satan himself conspired against Jesus. But we've also seen that above their schemes, God himself is at work. God himself is in control. He will use even the evil schemes of his enemies to bring about his own plan of salvation. And here Jesus deals with this interplay directly. The two strands come together in verse 22. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Yes, I do have to die, Jesus says. It is decreed as part of my Father's plan. But those who bring about my death are still guilty. Yes, God uses their schemes for ultimate good, but their intentions are still evil. And they will be held responsible for their rejection of me. In this verse, Jesus sets out what theologians call divine sovereignty and human responsibility. What that means is, yes, God is in control. His plans cannot be thwarted. Even the devil himself becomes God's instrument. God will use the leader's plot and Satan's moves and Judas' treachery. He will use all of that to bring about salvation through the cross. God is sovereign. And human beings are responsible for what they do. Woe to that man who betrays Jesus. Woe to that man or woman who denies Jesus his rightful place. Woe to that man or woman who gives their worship to another lesser God, an idol. Woe to that man or woman who looks at Jesus on the cross and turns away from his offer of mercy. The Bible does not allow us to use God's sovereignty as an excuse for our rejection of Jesus. God will rightly hold each one of us responsible for what we do with Jesus. Maybe you've been hearing about Jesus for months, maybe even years, but you've never responded to what you've heard. Don't sit there waiting for God to zap you with some kind of lightning bolt. Your responsibility is to respond to the good news that's held out to you. The good news that says you are more wicked and sinful than you ever dared believe. That's true. But in Christ, you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Those who are in Christ are those who acknowledge their sin. And put their faith and hope in Jesus' work on the cross. Then we're covered by his blood. Just like those houses back in Egypt. The Father's wrath will pass us by. We who were enemies of God begin a new life 
as dearly loved children of God. Yes, Jesus died for enemies like us. But we must come and place ourselves under his mercy. Otherwise, we're continuing to rebel against him. And God will hold us accountable. After Jesus' death, his followers no longer focused in on the exodus. Instead, they took bread and one cup and they focused on the cross. And we continue that as a church today as we celebrate what the New Testament calls the Lord's Supper, which is set for us on this table. Our passage has reminded us that in one sense, this supper that we celebrate is about the greatest evil ever carried out. The perfect Son of God was betrayed and killed by sinful man. And yet... Jesus said, this supper points us to the source of our greatest joy and security. It's about Jesus voluntarily laying down his life for our salvation. And so maybe you're a Christian this morning, but you're feeling uncertain about your relationship with God. Maybe you're not sure about his love and care for you today. Maybe somehow you've lost the joy of your salvation. You've lost the wonder of it. So this morning, let this bread and wine remind you that God has made a covenant with you. If you've come to Jesus as your only hope for this life and for the next life, then the bread and the wine are symbols of God's love for you. The perfectly holy God has given sinners like you and me a way into his presence. At this point, we're going to sing a song that helps us to focus in on this truth before we turn to the table. The song is, I Come by the Blood. <laughs>